I want to welcome you. I want to welcome those who are worshiping online. I'm glad you're part of us this morning as well. We'll have a word of prayer and get started. Jesus, thank you so much for the beauty of these people. And uh, man, Lord, what a high honor it is to share with them this morning. And Lord, I, I'm very much aware that um, we've all come to worship today uh, needing something. We're all here because um, we need you in our lives, need you to help speak into a situation. Uh, we, maybe we just want to be more like you, whatever it is, Lord. So I, I just invite you to have your way. Um, hide me deep in your cross and let us all hear from you. So when we leave this place, uh, we won't be challenged by any person, but we'll leave here with the ideas of God and think, my goodness, you know, what a difference this would make in my life and in my heart. So have your way in your name. Amen. I've been thinking this week a little bit um, about fear and um, specifically about uh, what it was like when uh, we were kids and being afraid to do something as a kid, like when dad would say, take the trash outside, or maybe like he would say, like, go to the barn and it's night, or um, like, uh, you know, um, maybe you got to run outside and get something out of the car, or maybe you're at a campfire and you got to head out deeper into the woods for whatever reason, and you got to do that. And so all those kinds of things kind of make us afraid. And so when our kids were small, we lived in a different house, and we had a pool. And so uh, we'd all swim at night, and then we'd come in the house, and, of course, you know, we'd throw all the clothes off, and or the, uh, well... The bathing suits is the word I meant there. I throw the bathing suits off, and then they get the towels. Well, then when that's finished, you got to take it outside and put it on the clothesline. The problem is the clothesline is outside, and it is dark. And so there's always this battle. You know, we'd say to the little kids, you know, say, hey, go outside and put your clothes on the clothesline. But the kids knew that apparently in our subdivision, there were lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. You know, so they were very much familiar that Lisa and I used to have 15 kids, but we'd lost 12 of them to these lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And so they wouldn't want to go out there, you know, by themselves. And so, um, you know, that was a problem. As adults, we sort of grow out of this, don't we? So uh, one time, uh, because of the schedule uh, that I had, I, we were, I was running, and I would run at night oftentimes, especially after the time change and all that happens. And so um, I was out running, and we lived in a neighborhood that was uh, just past it. We were surrounded by Clemson's Forest, and so it was often we would run and never see a car. You know, just like total pitch darkness and woods on either side and which I loved so I was out there I was running and I, was, I just run on that double yellow line and you know like I said never see a car and so just run and I got my headphones in listened to Katy Perry roar <laughs> don't judge me it helped me get me up the hill I just did so so uh, so I was doing that and I'm um, enjoying myself I was kind of in the zone you know and by zone I mean I was hardly breathing, and I was almost passed out, and so I kind of had that euphoria right before you pass out. And I'm running along when all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see movement in the woods. And it wasn't just a little movement like a little squirrel or something small and simple like a bear. You know, this was something that was huge. And so I had no idea what it was, but it was coming out of the woods, and it was coming out of the woods quickly, and I was certain it was going to eat me. It was going to eat me. And so no kidding, no exaggeration here. I'm not even doing preacher embellishment right now. This is a true story. You people don't believe that. It is a true story. It is. Literally, when the thing started to come out of the woods, no kidding, trees were snapping off. You your laughter convinces me. No, trees were, were snapping off when this thing came out of the woods. Totally dark. I haven't seen a car in a while. And it comes bounding out of the woods, trees falling over, and something alive is coming out to get me out. I'd like to tell you I remained cool in the moment. 
but I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I'm an adult, and I'm a big one at that, and basically I have like fine-tuned athletic abilities to respond to pain and suffering if I need to, but I did none of those things. So in that moment, I actually screamed like a little girl, ran down the road with a reserve of energy that I had never found before, ever found since, as I went screaming down the road calling for mama. Now, it ends up Clemson University was logging their yard or their, their forest that night. Now, this is not the exact machine, but it's close. And this machine that came up out of the woods, its tires were little. This is me. The tires would be about like that high. And the reason they were moving this machine at night is it literally was as wide as a lane and a half. So they had to move it at night. So I was running around the road trying to get home crying. And this machine pulled up beside me. <laughs> and there was this dude in the machine. And if you were driving that machine, you're not welcome here. And this dude up in the machine, all he did was look at me and grin and go like that right there. So I taught him that thing my brother taught me. I just shared that with him. But anyway, hey, do you know what the cure-all to fear of the dark is? I need, you need to know this, especially if you're young parents. There's a very simple solution that every parent knows, and it's simply this. Kid comes in, they're afraid. All you have to do is say, hey, I'll go with you. So if I said to the kids as they headed out into the bear-infested backyard toward the clothesline, if I said to them, I'll go along, all fear was gone. Oh, great, Dad's going. I'll go do this. And then they're really brave, you know, because Dad's like five feet behind. You know, who's scared? I'm not scared. In fact, when our kids were, you know, at times, we would give them all flashlights, and then we'd just all go in the woods and hike to the woods with flashlights in the middle of the night, just kind of as a family activity. And so all this sort of leads to the great truth that I want to share with you this morning, and I hope it'll be more evident as the morning goes on. It's simply this. There is incredible power, or there is great power in presence. There is a lot of great power in presence so there are some times of my life and times of our lives when things are going really well. Maybe you're sort of in that season now. Family's healthy, marriage is settled, the job's going really well, and the bills are paid, maybe even putting a little bit of money away, and your life seems all up and to the right. And when life is like this, God can kind of seem more like this distant, benevolent kind of God who just pours out blessings every once in a while for us to enjoy. And if we're honest... We kind of like that sort of God. God is close enough that we can run under his blessings if we need some blessings and then run back out and do our lives the way we want to do them and he doesn't cramp our style. But you're an intelligent group of people. We've all lived long enough to know that life doesn't stay in that season, does it? Sometimes life is tough. Life is much more difficult. It's filled with contrast. And, and part of life involves seasons of trial and difficulty and even, even seasons of death. So life can be joy-filled, but it can also be intense and exhausting. So illness is this unwelcome guest into your home, and it blasts its way and disrupts life. Marriage is so difficult, you're pretty sure you no longer love each other, and you have nowhere to turn, and you're pretty certain you don't want to talk to any counselor. Or maybe you're just so stinking tired of being alone, it isn't what you wanted, but nothing is changing, and it seems to be what you're stuck with. How about we just put it in locations, hospitals, funeral homes, 
unemployment offices, attorney offices, or an empty house. Maybe it's some mental battle. Maybe there's an emotional turmoil that you fight on a daily basis. Maybe you just got caught doing something you hoped you'd never get caught doing. Maybe the kids are making you feel defeated, or maybe the addiction is actually kicking you right now. I'm sure you could add to my list, but couldn't we all agree that there are times in life when we're scared? And you know what I tend to do, to tend to be most afraid of, even at this stage in my life? If I'm honest with you, I think I would have to tell you that I'm most afraid when there is an awareness of how out of control I really am. When I'm, when I'm running into something I can't fix. Something's going on in my kid's life that I can't step in and say, okay, you go to your room. Or the doctor comes and says, there's nothing else you can do. Or you've lost something you love. Those moments, that, that's when I find I'm most afraid because I'm realized. Holy smokes, who's in charge around here? Because it's not me. And in those moments when I sense that I'm out of control, I'll be honest, I don't want some distant God that I run underneath this sprinkle of benevolence every once in a while. I want a God who's with me. I want a God who's beside me, who's slugging it out alongside. He's battling for me because there is incredible power in presence. Now, I've come to the point in my life that I want God to be with me all the time. And I know that sounds really foreign to some in the room. I get that. But it doesn't matter the season. I desire for God to be close to me, to my marriage, to my children, because I believe I'm better, I'm better with God leading me than when I've tried to lead myself. I'm a better husband, father, friend, pastor, and man. In all of this, is why we're going after these two questions in this series with great intensity. And I trust and pray and hope you're answering these questions for yourself. And it's simply this. Do you have a relationship with God? And if you do, what's it look like? Everybody ought to be able to answer that one. Do you have a relationship with God? And if so, what does it look like? And as kind of a response to this, we've been looking at these different metaphors that Scripture offers for how people relate to God. It's not an exhaustive list. It just kind of points the movement, if you will. And the most basic metaphor for how everybody relates to God is like a courtroom metaphor. And the idea is this. We're guilty, and we go before the judge. And the judge says, your debt is paid, or you're forgiven, or you are no longer guilty. That's the most basic, basic level of relating to God. In Scripture, God makes it as if we have never sinned. It's the least intimate way of relating to God because it's almost contractual. You don't have a relationship with the judge. You're just in the judge's courtroom. And the judge says, okay, Harding, guilty, but I'm going to forgive that debt. You're free to go. But the Scripture doesn't just leave us there. Interestingly enough, when all of Scripture starts in the Garden of Eden, God's actually portrayed as a friend. The the way I think about it is um, God and Adam and Eve would hang out and drink lemonade on the front porch. That's, That's the picture we're given in Scripture when this whole thing began. Before Scripture's even written, before there's any Ten Commandments, before there's any Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, before any of that, Abraham was on the scene 
Abraham is called a friend of God. And so we move from a courtroom to a friend, but then the scripture actually gets even more intimate. If you go into the book of Exodus, for the first time in the book of Exodus, God is actually, we're actually referred to as family. God calls us his children, sons and daughters, all the way in the book of Exodus, sons and daughters. And you remember when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, our father, you, you call on father, not judge, but actually on a father who art in heaven. And as if that isn't enough, the scripture's on this agenda. It's almost like you don't want to leave here in the courtroom and don't want to leave just as friend and family. So it uses the most intimate human relationship that we have, and that is an intimate relationship of marriage, of how we can relate to God. In fact, as scripture winds up in the book of Revelation, this group of people is called the bride of Christ. You are his bride the most intimate relationship we have on the planet. And what I marvel at, at these metaphors as they continue to be unveiled is what these metaphors say about God, not about me. For once in, in our lives, this is so difficult to get our eyes off ourselves and let's look for a moment about what this says about God because apparently God desires to be intimate with us. With you, with me. That's what's in his heart. He's actually seeking an intimate relationship, not just a judge in a courtroom. He's actually seeking an intimate relationship with you because God desires to to go with us into whatever we're facing or whatever lies ahead. The good and the bad, times of great joy and times of deep sorrow. This God wants to relate to us like that. And today, what we're going to learn is God's desire to relate to us is now going to go beyond the most intimate relationship that humans have with one another. The Bible says not just relating to God as courtroom, friend, family, and marriage. The Bible offers the metaphor of indwelling. And what this means is you and I have the option of relating to God in such a way, are you ready? That he lives within. The scripture uses this word, he actually tabernacles or sets up a tent in my life. Again, when the whole thing wraps up, book Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come in, eat with him, and he'll be with me. Did you all grow up in a church anywhere that had the picture of Jesus outside some creepy door knocking on the door? Do you know what I'm talking about? So I had this picture, like, Jesus out there, and there's, no, and it's like, there's this dark door and all these, like, you know, vines around it and stuff, and Jesus is standing at this door knocking. And I remember when I saw that growing up, I thought, oh, that's kind of creepy, but it's also kind of cute, you know, that, that, that Jesus is standing at the door of the hearts of unbelievers. Here's the problem. That verse isn't written to unbelievers. It's written to believers. It's written to me, and it's written to you folks, if you believe. So what the scripture is saying, just to be clear, Jesus is saying, here I am. 
I'm standing at the door of your heart, Tom, and I'm a knocking. If you'll open the door, you hear my voice and you open it, I'll come in, Tabernacle, and eat with him and, and he with me. That's what the scripture is saying. It's not Jesus talking to unbelievers. This is a verse for you believers. Somewhere, you folks that are stuck on this metaphor chart down here, what these are saying is we have yet to say yes to Christ at another level to invite him to come in and to have hot pockets with him. That's what this is about. Come on in, God. We'll put a frozen pizza in. DiGiorno time, man. We're going to be rocking it together. That's what this is saying. With Christ on the outside, the fellowship, the friendship, and the power with Jesus, all of that is limited. All of it. But with Christ on the inside, there is a wonderful fellowship and sharing of the marvelous grace of God. And here's the thing. God will not kick down the doors to move you into a deeper relationship with him. That's why he gave you a choice. That's why we have free will. That's why God, the maker of the universe, Tom, although God's voice doesn't crack, but Tom, Tom, let me in, dude, because he won't kick down the door. I got to open the door. Paul taught this same thing to the church in Colossae. You can read it through all the pages of Scripture. Read it for yourself. This is what Paul says. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. See, Jesus is offering to not only be with us, but actually to be in us. This isn't marriage. This isn't father and child. This isn't friendship. This is God in us. I am closer to Lisa than anybody else on the planet. She's my soulmate. She completes me. I don't know what else to say in regard to that, but I was trying to get romantic in the moment. But that's what she is. But here's the thing. We know each other very well. But if I get on a plane and fly somewhere else, she ain't with me anymore. Did y'all write that down? I mean, I know I just blew your mind. I know, don't send me a postcard. Oh, but she's with you in your heart. Yeah, yeah, whatever. But it doesn't preach. But here's what I'm saying. For this moment, if I get on the plane and I'm somewhere else, as much as I love her and as much as she loves me, we're not together. But God offers us such a relationship that wherever we go, he goes. That's what it means to live with Christ in you. And only once you get here, only once you understand this, can you begin to understand those two intimidating verses that we've been talking about this whole series. Now you get it. When, when Leviticus says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, now you understand. He's saying, because I'm going to tabernacle in you. I'm going to be with you inside. That's the only way this holiness thing's going to work. Be perfect, be mature, be complete. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is mature, perfect, complete, you can't do it on your own, but only if I'm dwelling in you. Because at first, those verses are laughable. 
God's not asking us to make ourselves any of these things because we can't. It'll never happen. What God is asking for is permission to make us these things by allowing him to dwell in us. 1 Thessalonians says this, may God himself, the God of peace, I always love that phrase, does anybody need any peace in their lives? May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. What that means is cause you to be holy through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body, everything, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. God is the one who acts in us and through us to make us holy and to mature us, complete us, to perfect us. This is what God does. And if you're trying to be holy and this is your only relationship with God, you will experience nothing but frustration because you cannot do it through a contract, only through the most intimate relationship. And when God dwells in us, when we invite him in at that deep level, new patterns begin to be established. New behavior, new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing yourself, new ways of seeing the world, clearer purposes for your life. And this is where we learn to imitate God and how we live and how we love each other and how we love people we don't even know that happens here listen to me it doesn't happen here there are two billion people on the planet who call themselves christians can you imagine if two billion people on the planet learned to relate to god at that level how it would change the entire world And it kind of gets me excited because I'm an idealist in this regard, at least, that every Sunday, churches gather together and this potential power is on the table. As intense and as incredible as that is, there is yet even a greater level of intimacy with God available to all who desire it and are willing to open the door. This is what scripture offers as the deepest relationship that we can have with God himself. And it becomes, it's the metaphor when God becomes our soul identity. What does that mean? Well, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is getting ready to send out the 12 disciples. And it's the worst halftime speech that's been ever recorded <laughs> Because it's a terrible one. Basically, he says to the disciples, y'all going to get beat to a pulp. This is going to be the worst day of your life. They're going to beat you, arrest you, kill you. That's the speech he gives. You can read it for yourself, Matthew 10. And then Jesus says these words. He says, but he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. See, this is more than Christ dwelling in us. 
I don't know if I have any Oswald Chamber fans out there. Um, Lisa and I tend to read Oswald quite regularly. You actually get an app on your phone now for all the Oswald readers out there. And I love his writings, have since college. But this week I was reading in Oswald, and this is what he said. He said, in the early stages of the Christian life, we do not watch with Jesus. We actually watch for him. We do not watch with him through the revealed truth of the Bible, even in the circumstances of our lives. Now, let me, let me, let me kind of apply the butter to bread here. What he's saying is, in the early stages of Christianity, we basically are waiting for God to show up. So it looks like this. Oh, God, um, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, so-and-so is sick, and I hope you'll, hope you'll show up for it. God, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're having some marriage issues. Can we really need you to show up for us? God, I don't know if I can get out of bed, addiction, emotion, whatever. I really need you to show up for me. And that's how many people relate to God in the bottom part of our metaphors. We're basically sitting on the front porch waiting for God to show up. When Jesus becomes our identity, all of life is done with Jesus already on the scene. You're not waiting for God to show up. He's already there. What would it mean for you to make Jesus your full identity? Because many of us under the alive community today are waiting for God to show up in a situation. And so we pray like that. But there's a relationship available with God where we are in such a relationship with God There's a relationship when Jesus is so much our identity and we so closely identify with him that he's always with us. (laughs) So when we're going through a situation that scares us to death, the prayer isn't we need for you to show up. The prayer is, God, I know you're with me. Now let's slug this out together. Do you see the difference? The prayer is, God, I know you wouldn't let me go through this by myself. You are with me in this. I hurt. You hurt. I'm afraid. You're the presence. And you're with me. That is what it means for Christ to be your identity. God has already shown up no matter what you're facing. God is already involved even when you've just heard that diagnosis. God is already involved when the kids are acting or when the parents are acting out or the job is messing you up. He is our identity. So we are actually learning with Jesus. We are enduring with Jesus. We are grieving with Jesus. We are battling with Jesus at our side. And that's a game changer. Now, I think God knew you and I would struggle with buying this at this point in time. At this point. Uh, Some of us in the room. 
That sounds real good, Tom, but I don't see it happening for me. Because the great battle has always been to believe that there is a God who actually cares about me. To further believe that he's actually with me in my life is even greater. So toward the end of Jesus' life, he knows he's facing suffering and death, and he's gathered with his disciples, and he does something so insane, so unheard of, so out of the norm, that the authors of Scripture capture the story, and they tell it repeatedly. Unfortunately, you've already heard the story, so it's amazingness is already worn off, but I'm going to do my best to at least call your attention to how phenomenal this really is. Apparently, they were preparing this meal, and Jesus, the Son of God, when he walked into the room, he pours water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, again, we have a hard time relating because this is such this, is, this was a servant work. It wasn't anything that anybody did. In fact, that's why all the disciples walked by it, because they wouldn't stoop by to do this. But here in this story, Jesus, the Son of God, trying to convince the good folks that are alive that he wants to do life with you, Jesus, the Son of God, gets down on his knees and kneels before his disciples, and he washes their feet. Listen, people kneel before kings and queens. We kneel in communion or we kneel in prayer, but never in the course of human history has the one being worshipped knelt before the one worshipping. Look at the story. Look who is kneeling. It's the eternal God of history. Look who's performing the role of the servant. It's the everlasting, almighty King of kings and Lord of lords. And from that position of kneeling, he calls out to us, let me be with you. Let me be with you. Make me your identity. I kneel before you. Make me your identity. Sacrifice is where the worshiper gives something of value to the one being worshipped. The Christian faith jacks all that up. And the Christian faith teaches something that is so unique from any other faith. No other faith even sniffs this. Here in the Christian faith, we have the eternal God giving his greatest possession, his son, as a sacrifice for the ones who come to worship him. But even more blinding is the idea that God, the one worthy of worship, offers his son as a sacrifice for those peace people, even those who don't know him, even those who are vehemently, vehemently really opposed to him. <laughs> the whole picture's upside down, and it makes no sense. Why would God do that? God crossed the divide you and I couldn't cross because he wanted you to know this was actually on the table. He wants to be our identity at the deepest level. You know what I've learned about being scared? You know what? Big machines jumping out of the woods and dodging the bears and wolves by the clothesline has taught me? If I have to be comforted, if I want to be comforted, 
I have to embrace something bigger than me. So, Thomas, when he was little, say he's three, he says, Dad, I'm scared to go to the clothesline. It's okay, son, I'll go with you. And Thomas is great. This feels good. But what's interesting about that is when I'm facing a certain fear, three-year-old Thomas coming with me doesn't help me at all. I mean, if I'm running in the woods and something comes out of the woods, like breaking trees over, and all I got is Katy Perry roaring in my ears, and I got little three-year-old Thomas, I'm still scared to death, and he's on his own. <laughs> he's a little bigger now, so I think it's getting to the point now where he'll actually start, hey, son, will you go with me out to the clothesline? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Isn't it true? Isn't it true? Come on. If you're afraid, you want something bigger than you. Fair? Holiness is learning to live with someone bigger than me. That's what this is. The indwelling and making Christ my identity is fully embracing and surrendering my way to someone bigger than me. Now, there is no way I can answer all the questions in your mind, but I want to make you aware, for those that are interested, of the second helping that starts next Sunday night. It's in this room, and Dr. Bob Black will come in for however long we give him, He will teach us about what it means to relate to God at this level. Come with a notebook. Dr. Black is a stunning, stunning teacher. And it's intentional. I want to see the whole community rise up. Huh? You follow me? Now next week, I'm going to share with you the one thing that can undo all of that. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being willing to do life with me. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for being that someone bigger than me. And Lord, it's one thing to call on you to go with me out to the clothesline. It's another thing to know you're already with me. And so I pray for my friends in this room right now, and they're at this clothesline moment in their lives. Something has them rattled, got them concerned, keeping them awake at night. Would you be so kind? Would you be so kind as to stand at the door of those hearts and knock? And if you sense God knocking at your heart, open the door. Just open it. It starts by you saying, God, come in. 
you come in. Maybe you did that a long time ago as a kid. Maybe you started that courtroom relationship with God. But maybe he's knocking at your heart right now about that thing that's got you rattled. And he's waiting for you to invite him in because he won't force himself. And if he is, invite him in. He'll teach you. He'll show you. I pray, God, that as a result of our time together, a whole alive community would walk and do life with someone bigger than us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.